This is Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. The stories behind inventions. Episode 4. Raising the Veil and Catching the Tube. The previous episode in this series of podcasts about great leaps forward in technology and human advancements of one kind or another took us from Alessandro Volta and his creation of the battery, his voltaic pile, via Napoleon and the Volta Prize across the century to Alexander Graham Bell, who won that prize in 1880. We chatted, didn't we, about how the action-at-a-distance force observable in static electricity had been united with the action-at-a-distance force observable in magnets. This unity of the two fields of force was achieved by the extraordinary experimental work done by Michael Faraday and vindicated by the equations of James Clerk Maxwell. A magnet could become a current and a current could become a magnet. The forces were, if I can put it this way, incontrovertibly interconvertible. They were essentially the same. So much of our modern world is founded on the implications of the union of these two fields of force, for the technology that harnessed and exploited electromagnetism created new forms of action at a distance that transformed our world like nothing else. I'll put it this way. The Greek for at a distance is tele. And what the early pioneers of electricity did was create lots of things that might be prefixed with tele. And if you think about it, the things that start with tele define the cycle in our human story that we now have the good or ill fortune to be living through. We should remember as we proceed with these podcasts that we ought still to be counting energy stored or spent as calories, as heat which is work which is heat. Our second episode looked at Gutenberg and his perfection of movable type printing. We can understand how the new technology of print transformed the world, but we shouldn't forget, without sounding like professional economists who see all human history as not much more than the movement of money, that what Gutenberg achieved was a radical, exponential lowering of the cost of information. It was the staggering cheapness of print that allowed information like a benign version of the Black Death to infect the world with such speed. Mostly benign, perhaps we should say. Gutenberg's Bible, of course, contained two columns of 42 lines each, 42. Is that why Douglas Adams chose the number to be the answer to life, the universe and everything? I'm saying nothing. So, these are the variables we should keep in mind when considering technological leaps. There is the cost of the new technology's product, in other words, the cost of the materials and calories needed to manufacture and operate the technology. This is expressed as the work done thanks to plant calories to fuel the human labour, or wood, peat and carbonised plant calories like coal to generate machine steam or electrical power. There is the sum of work done by both humans and machines to construct the infrastructures that enable the technologies to do their magic, and there are the day-to-day -day running costs in calories of the systems themselves. Of course, those calories are usually expressed these days as a currency, for simplicity's sake, the dollar. 
But the dollar is a calorie token, really. Don't worry, I'm I'm not going to talk much more about the economics of technology. After all, as innovation gathers pace after the Industrial Revolution, new technologies, services, systems and businesses arrive, which you can't compare to anything that's gone before because they really are new. The explosion of newspapers and periodicals that began in the 18th century, for example, had no precedent in the monk-driven world of writing and manuscripts, so calling it cheap or expensive is meaningless when there's nothing to compare it with. Right, where were we? In between those two mighty figures, Volta and Bell, I described the development of the electric telegraph in Britain by Ronalds, Wheatstone and others, adapted and greatly improved in the United States by Samuel Morse and Ezra Cornell. The stringing out of wires along poles across America that Cornell's company Western Union achieved, even before the railway had crossed the continental United States, marked the beginning of a whole new way of communicating. Electrical pulses, using a binary code, long or short, could convey the entire range of human thought and information that can be expressed by the 26 letters of the alphabet and the 10 integers of our counting system, naught to nine. Code, tapped in New York as deep, dip, dip, deep, deep, dip, arrived at the speed of light in a post office in San Francisco, where it could be interpreted live by one fluent in Morse's code, or embossed on tape in raised bumps to be read off later and kept for posterity. Morse's assistant, who collaborated on the Morse code and other elements of electric telegraph, was a man called Alfred Vale, whose cousin we will meet before long, talking of cousins, meet a nephew. For, not content with stretching across the American continent, as early as the 1860s, work began on a transatlantic undersea cable for telegraphs. Problems with the degradation of signal strength along those thousands of miles were worked on by many heads, none greater than that of the British self-taught genius in mathematics, physics and electrical engineering, Oliver Heaviside. Best remembered these days because of the region of the ionosphere named after him, the Heaviside Lair. He, as it happily happened, was a nephew of Charles Wheatstone, that early pioneer of workable telegraphy. Heaviside discovered a vital principle known as the loading coil. You know those spring coils you used to see on car phone antennas? A stubby aerial with a coiled, springy bit low down. Those are loading coils. It's an inductor, a kind of transformer that increases the inductance, Heaviside's term, on the circuit and, for the purposes of something like a super-long cable, crucially decreases the signal distortion. This heaviside discovery will become even more important later, but loading coils were first conceived and employed as a result of the requirements of infrastructure for telegraphy. Now, Ezra Cornell and his Western Union's major interest in telegraphy was, of course, to make money. The Morse code, once interpreted, could be typed into strips and gummed onto paper and read as writing at a distance which was translated as so much technology, including the word technology itself, always is, into Greek as telegram. Telegraph for the writing at a distance, but telegram for the written product that comes from a distance. Alexander Graham Bell originally called his technology harmonic telegraphy, which is rather charming, but in the end settled for the Greek word phone 
for voice or sound suffixed to tele to make telephone. The word that arose later to describe all kinds of messaging back and forth across distances was, of course, telecommunications, a hybrid merging of Latin and Greek that, like the later mongrel-minting television, annoyed purse-lipped purist classicists. Never mind them. Western Union made money by charging customers for the sending of the telegrams that zipped along their telegraph wires. In the early days of GSM phone texting, the short message service, SMS, and then into the age of Twitter and other social media, many wise old heads were shaken at the disgraceful nature of the abbreviations used to text and tweet. Tut, tut, what was going to happen to articulate, eloquent, elegant language while all these initials, emoticons, compressions, abbreviations or abreaves, heaven help us, were being used by the young? Well, the reason for the abbreviations was simple. What is called in the network age bandwidth, plus maybe a bit of laziness in the early days when thumbing number keys on a dial pad to generate alphabetical characters was a bore. But this tendency to compress and condense wasn't new. One of the greatest letter writers in history was the poet Lord Byron. The sending of messages in his day, the early 19th century, before the advent of the penny post and the mail services that came from that, was expensive. It was all couriers and horses, a lot of calories to be paid for. The paper was expensive, too. The more pages in your letter, the more it cost you. Byron spent a lot of time exiled in Italy, so the letters he wrote home cost him dear. As a result, like all letter writers of his age, Jane Austen and the Prime Minister William Pitt, for example, he used abbreviations. Yours was yours. Yesterday was yuday. Week was wook. Any word that could be shortened and still understood was. Lines were written up the sides to save paper, too. For the same exigencies that motivated later generations, bandwidth constrictions, Byron took egregious liberties with the English language. But when he laid his letter-writing aside and picked up a fresh page to write a poem... Was his language capacity compromised? Did he suddenly drivel like an uneducated imbecile? Of course not. We will return to the dire prognostications about human intelligence, cognition, competence and sense made by doom-mongers about the digital age in depth very soon. But, as with all scrutiny of the present and future, it is the past that so often offers the best lens with which to view. Stunningly shiny new as we think our age, it has all happened before in one way or another. Incidentally, newspapers also have bandwidth or space issues on their front pages, which is why headlinees, the language of headlines, is used. It bears little relation to the language of everyday speech, but we're so used to it that we rarely parse it or question it. I saw, not long ago, peers in bid to axe HS2 for example, which you can write in huge letters as a headline, but which no one would ever say. I think it meant that some members of the House of Lords, peers, were trying, in bid, to halt the go-ahead for funding, axe, 
the second high-speed rail link proposed by the British government, HS2, peers in bid to axe HS2, bandwidth again. One publication, more than any other, the American show business periodical Variety, has developed its own mightily eccentric and endearing language. Famous examples include B.O. for box office, Biz for business, Pick for movie, Ota for western, cowboy movies have horses and horses eat oats, Sked for schedule, Nix for say no to, Helm for direct, Bow for premiere, Boffo, Socko or Whammo for big hit, Sticks for the countryside. Um, so Ford, Skedded to Helm, New Fox, Ota, would mean that John Ford is scheduled to direct a new western for 20th Century Fox. Pick Bows with Socko B.O. in Gotham might be a headline for a movie that has opened with a big box office return in New York City. There's a charming scene in the Warner Brothers classic film Yankee Doodle Dandy where James Cagney as ageing Broadway legend George M. Cohan tells a group of rock-and-roll teenagers about this splendid tradition. He explains a famous example of a variety headline, Sticks, Nicks, Hick, Picks, which means people in rural areas aren't turning up to see movies that are set in rural areas. Sticks, Nicks, Hick, Picks. The kids try and turn it into a Hepcat song, Sticks, Nicks, Hick, Picks. Many Variety inventions are used, as is often the way with specialist linguistic tropes and formulations, to reinforce the sense of special belonging for the profession, the biz. But some are just there because they're funny. My favourite is Variety Speak for a TV situation comedy that's aimed at teenagers, a zitcom. Anyway, Ezra Cornell's Western Union charged its customers by the word for their telegrams, so a clipped compressed form of language, telegraphies, was developed here, too. Pronouns, redundant verbs, and what grammarians call particles were usually dropped. Ten words was the lowest cost, and many took pride in reducing their messages to exactly that, much as early Twitter users were so proud to post a tweet of exactly 140 characters. Punctuation in telegrams was usually confined to the word stop to mean full stop, or what Americans call the period, and it counted as a word. Am coming dinner Thursday stop, allergic seafood stop, love Tommy. Hurrah! That's ten words exactly, and I only pay the minimum. Then the operator charges you an extra ten cents because he thinks seafood is two words and a heated row ensues. Such scenes were common at Western Union offices between the mid-19th and 20th centuries. Bandwidth cost money because it cost electricity and paper and the telegraph company wanted to maximise its profits, pay for its infrastructure, staff and running costs with enough left over to pay dividends to stockholders. Nonetheless, as Americans like to say, do the math. A few cents a word for such instant messaging compared to sending a letter by train or dispatching a rider on the Pony Express? And look at what possibilities such fast communication open up in the world of financial trading and business. The Western Union shareholders may have made money from people who used their service, but lots of people saved and made money by using their service. What game theory calls a positive-sum game, the kind of growth 
that almost seems like the creation of something out of nothing. Gutenberg and print had transformed the world in the mid-15th century, but the Morse-Cornell achievement was the first indication of a suggestion, of a hint of a possibility, of a wholly new way of disseminating information for the 19th and subsequent centuries, at the speed of light. If I were to suggest that Alexander Graham Bell's telephone was the truly transformational technology of the late 19th and early 20th century, I would do so not because the device was in and of itself so very fundamental. I actually think of the telephone as being a rather primitive blip in our communications. The telegraph, which came before, and digital communications that came later, were in a sense more existentially transformative but it was Bell's winning of the Volta Prize in 1880 and his putting the prize money at the disposal of the new Bell Labs that he founded, that was what changed the world, I would suggest, more than the telephone itself. I'll try and suggest that it was the attempt to make that clumsy invention, the telephone, work across America that threw up a whole new science that really did transform everything. Of course the telephone is remarkable, but as a communication device its real-time intrusion on the world never appealed to me, for one. When I talk about the telephone I mean the original invention, not the cellular, mobile and digital variations that have come since. I grew up during the high tide of telephony's coming of age. New exchanges replaced the old mechanical relays and touch-tone phone dialing arrived in Britain in the 1980s, as did generally available answer phones and then another stopgap, fax machines. But essentially phones were phones until mobile and cellular telephony changed it all. Fixed by a cable to a socket in the wall and non-programmable. You're sitting there at your desk, trying to write, or you're having a, a deep and meaningful conversation with one you love, and bring this damned instrument on the table starts making the most almighty noise. Imagine that this was a person bursting unannounced into your room, thumping the desk with their fist and shouting, Speak to me now! Speak to me now! I won't shut up until you speak to me now! Rude. That's what telephones were. But that's a personal aside. Some people loved them and, and spent all day trailing and tripping over extra-long curly flexes as they chatted. Why would I say, though, that it was the Bell Labs rather than Bell's invention of the telephone that transformed the world? Well, Bell filed his patent in 1875, famously just an hour before his rival, Elisha Gray. Lawsuits followed, which Bell won. He and his investors kept the patent. The United States, in which he worked and which was to give him citizenship in 1882, had entered what historians call its Gilded Age. That refers often to the high-society, Edith Wharton kind of world of new and old money holding balls in New York, but it resulted from the incredibly profitable peace dividend that came from the ending of the Civil War just ten years before Bell's patent, and the reconstruction that followed. The reconstruction included, indeed you might say, was headlined by the railway. 
great fortunes were to be made from the railroads. I mentioned last time Leland Stanford, one of the ruthless, buccaneering, so-called Big Four railroad barons, who, like Ezra Cornell of Western Union, made his fortune and then piled it into the foundation of a university named after him, in his case, near San Jose, California. The kerosene that lit the lamps that illuminated American homes was carried as freight by rail from the Ohio oil fields of John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil all around America. Rail barons Commodore Vanderbilt and Jay Gould became two of the richest men in the world, and an immigrant Scot called Andrew Carnegie saw the immense value not of owning the railroads, but of owning the material on which they relied, steel. He piled up his fortune, sold out to banker, financier, venture capitalist, all rolled into one, John Pierpont Morgan, who turned the company into U.S. Steel, instantly making Carnegie the richest man in the world, until, like Stanford and Cornell, he devoted the evening of his years to spending the fruits of his near monopoly on philanthropic causes, libraries, concert halls, and, yes, colleges and universities. You're listening to Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. I'll be back after a short interval. A clear pattern has emerged. The exploitation and refinement of inventions, the laying down of communication systems, the amassing of fortunes, and the dispersal of them, the seeding of new seats of learning. The technologies connect people and communities by spreading either ideas and information, as telegraph, telephone and stock tickers do, or by spreading goods, services, raw material and labour, as railways do the money generated to be ploughed into institutions of higher education that might seed future innovation and scientific discovery in what, in ideal conditions, might be regarded as a positive feedback loop. We'll hold that thought and help ourselves to another little sidebar. I mentioned John D. Rockefeller, the Ohio oil man whose standard oil was taken by rail all round America. Well, he hated to pay the rail companies so much that he circumvented them by building his own infrastructure, a network of pipelines that allowed him to move oil without paying the railmen. That's a whole other story, but right this minute, we have to go to Nantucket and New Bedford, two Massachusetts whaling towns. For a century or more, whaling ships ventured out, Moby Dick style, to harpoon, kill, flens and thoroughly exploit the calories nature had packed into the whale. Its blubber contains huge quantities of oil that was used for lighting, heating and lubricating the civilised world. The sperm whale, that huge marine mammal with its characteristic long, square-ended head, was most especially prized for its unique sperm oil, actually a kind of liquid wax. 
Nothing to do with its reproductive system. The animal was called a sperm whale because its melon, or head cavity, contains that wax, spermaceti, which, when out in the open air, whitens into a gloopy substance that resembles mammalian seminal fluid. Its use for whales isn't fully understood, but it seems to be something to do with depth diving and echolocation. The liquefied wax, the oil, was especially prized in the 19th century and therefore valuable for its low viscosity, its, its fineness, if you like, which, unlike most oil, was retained even in extremes of temperature. It burned more cleanly and brightly in lamps for illumination than other oils, and unlike them gave off no unpleasant smells. And because it was thin and didn't congeal or dry out, it was perfect for the lubrication of precision instruments, sewing machines and watches and clocks, for example, as well as heavy machinery like locomotives, steam hammers and mechanised looms. Its low freezing point was another plus. Basically, it was a miracle fuel and lubricant. But the whaling got so efficient and intense on account of the high price of this wonder stuff that the sperm whale was in danger of being hunted to extinction. By one of those twists of history that give you pause and make you wonder, the whales were saved because exactly at the time they were about to be made extinct, the 1890s, the petrochemical oil industry discovered how to crack crude oil into different forms, forms that could replace the natural oils from spermaceti more cheaply. It came about like this. Petrochemicals are what chemists call aliphatic or open-chain hydrocarbons. These are marvellously useful chemicals for all kinds of purposes, the first and most obvious being fuel of some kind due to their combustibility. The simplest or lightest chain is the hydrocarbon CH4, one carbon atom, C, four hydrogen, H4, and that's methane, discovered by our old friend Alessandro Volta, working on a hint from Benjamin Franklin about combustible air. These hydrocarbons that don't puff out of the ground like methane gas, but are drilled and brought up as petroleum, meaning petrous oleum, or oil from the rocks, can be cracked or separated out from their crude state by distillation or other means in the process known as refining. The custom is to give such products the suffix ain, to distinguish saturated, as they call them, hydrocarbons or alkanes. If you imagine a series of hydrocarbons going from those with the least carbon in their chain to the most, adding one carbon atom and two hydrogen each time, the first are all gases, CH4, as I said, methane, then ethane, propane and butane. The next lightest hydrocarbon chains from petroleum are very volatile liquids, the naphthas from C5. Because of the number of carbon atoms, they are referred to often using the Greek numbers, followed by the ane suffix, so pentane, hexane and heptane. Their major use is as solvents in dry cleaning and other such processes, paint thinning, for example. The next groupings from C8 are more volatile still. In fact, they're almost gaseous and hence are called the gasolines. C8 is familiar because we see the word octane commonly at the gas pump. Quick linguistic sidebar. The very, very absolute substance of a thing is its breath. 
in some languages. The Latin word we've inherited for breath is seen in the spire words. Inspire, aspirate, expire, respiration, spirit, and so on. So the absolute stuff of petroleum from the ground is petroleum spirits, which is what we British call gasoline. We shorten it to petrol of course. The French had the same idea, but used another word for the absolute being of something, its essence. So the French for petrol is essence. The Germans are weird and call it benzene, after petroleum benzene, also known as petroleum ether, one of the gasoline stages of crude. The word benzene, incidentally, like benzoic, ultimately derives from the balsamic resin of a tree, Starax benzoin. As you'll know from the last episode of this series, the word electricity derives from the resin of a tree too, electron, the Greek for amber. But our word amber comes from another unique product of, guess what, the sperm whale, the mysterious grey lump of stinky matter it passes and which was used for centuries as a fixative in, counterintuitively perhaps, perfume. The stuff is known as ambergris, grey amber, from the Arabic anbar, and then was applied to the tree resin too. So amber connects us to electricity and to the sperm whale who was saved by the petrochemical industry. By gum, what you can get from resin and whales. It really is all very Douglas Adams. So where were we? Lordy, you do ever distract a fellow. Yes, um, we're cracking crude into gasoline. Heavier hydrocarbon chains from C12 include kerosene, or paraffin as we Brits call it, and diesel fuel, and the kind of fuel oil used for heating your central heating boiler. Then, heavier in viscosity and more loaded with carbon are the products we would think gloopy enough to call oil, the lubricants, engine oil, transmission oil, and so on. Add any more carbons at the C20 range, and you get solids like paraffin wax and the ingredients of Vaseline and soap. The next stage is tar, and finally asphaltic bitumen of the sort that tarmacs the road. All from living creatures, carbon life forms like us, that over millions of years and millions of tons of pressure became crude oil in the ground. The potential in crude oil, now opened up by the science of cracking, that was understood earlier but fully developed on an industrial scale in the 1890s, gave humanity vaporous gas and volatile liquids at one end, thick, sludgy tar at the other, a rainbow of uses. But we have more or less reached the limits of my understanding or knowledge of hydrocarbon and petrochemical science. What interests us is that this discovery of how to refine crude oil saved the whale. Mind you, NASA was still using spermaceti oil because of its perfect retention of viscosity at very low temperatures right up to the 1970s. But generally and fortunately, thanks to kerosene and the new lubricants cracking offered, down went the price of spermaceti and up from the brink came the sperm whale population. An accidental but happy byproduct. Unlike the many accidental and unhappy byproducts of the hydrocarbon industries that we still live with today in terms of plastics in the ocean, climate change and pollution. The cracking of long-chain hydrocarbons was necessary, of course, to allow Carl Bentz to perfect his internal combustion engine, which ran on the now-available gasoline part of the hydrocarbon spectrum. 
created along with the other hydrocarbon byproducts in the oil company's new refineries with their crazy complex pipework and flaming chimneys. Bentz found that gasoline was not too volatile, like propane, for example, nor too viscous, like kerosene, but had the perfect Goldilocks properties for his requirements. I wonder if Carl Bentz's name derives from the Styrax benzoin tree, too, or whether the Germans chose benzene over petrol, essence, or gasoline as a name for automobile fuel because it reminded them of their hero, Carl Bentz. So many things to wonder. One thing we can be sure of is that just as the world would have tragically run out of sperm whales if it weren't for crude oil refinement, so New York City would have become uninhabitable if it weren't for Carl Bentz. By the late 19th and early 20th centuries, everyone was observing that the horse manure piling up in New York streets had reached unmanageable levels, as had the disease and sickness caused by equine carcasses and excrement littering the sidewalks and roadways. More and more immigrants were arriving daily by the thousands and thousands, more and more uses for horses for delivery of everything and the transportation of everyone. Statisticians, public health officials and others all, rightly in their own terms, predicted the end of New York as a viable urban centre. Forced evacuation was called for. The manure will be eight foot deep in two years, they cried. But they were not to know, as the sperm whales were not, that salvation was just around the corner in the form of the petrochemical industry and the internal combustion engine. It brought trouble in its wake, of course it did, and plenty of it, but it at least retired the overworked horse into peaceful pasture, just as the telegraph retired the ponies of the Pony Express. It certainly looked good for Rockefeller, who had overtaken Andrew Carnegie, the steel magnate, as the richest man in the world. The sperm whale's gain was his too. His oil, as kerosene, lit and heated America now, and in its other refined manifestations, lubricated America too. Soon, as gasoline, it would replace steam as the calorie source for transport and industry altogether. Nothing could have made Rockefeller crosser than the day he found out that Thomas Alva Edison had come up with an illumination device that ran on electricity, not oil, his filament light bulb. Some terrible fires in tenement buildings did much of the work for Edison in encouraging the world to move away from oil lamps and gas lamps, but that's another story. To recap, Morse... Vale and Cornell gave the world telegraphy through Western Union. Marconi, to whom I alluded last time, gave the world radio. Carnegie monopolised steel production until he sold out to the banker and financier Pierpont Morgan, who created the giant corporation US Steel. Bentz developed the internal combustion engine to give us the motor car. The Wright brothers demonstrated powered, heavier-than-air flight. Edison gave us the light bulb, and then the ticker tape machine, the phonograph, movie cameras, and lots else, including electrical generation and a cunning use of carbon granules that we'll come to. Alexander Graham Bell gave the world the telephone and divided his company into two corporations, American Telephone and Telegraph, AT&T, and Western Electric. They were each an arm of the overall Bell system, which the American public, affectionately or not so affectionately, 
called Mar Bell. Most of these entrepreneurs, visionaries and titans lived at the same time and knew each other, either as collaborators, customers or rivals. The period from the mid-70s to the turn of the 20th century was one of explosive innovation, invention and development. Marconi, Bell, the Wright brothers, Bentz and Edison were fated, lauded and lionised as inventors. Rockefeller, Pierpont Morgan, Carnegie and a man we'll look at next time, George Westinghouse, were businessmen, financiers, entrepreneurs, what were called magnates. Inventors and magnates were hugely admired and celebrated at this time. They were the future. They were the human dynamos that powered this extraordinary new age. It was a short and golden time for invention. Material scientists, chemists and physicists, were not regarded as central to this process at all, and least of all were theoretical scientists and mathematicians. If they happened to explain phenomena like electricity and tell the world about invisible particles like electrons, then fine. But a man like Edison was far too busy and important to worry about explanations and descriptions. He was actually proud of the fact that he failed algebra at school and to his dying day couldn't explain electricity. Why should he, when he knew how to use it? A familiarity with materials was important, but the physics behind them, a distraction. The 20th century that dawned, just as these remarkable figures were maturing and waxing great, would put paid to this attitude forever. It would be the century where an understanding and knowledge of physics and mathematics became essential. Invention, mechanical and electrical engineering, innovation and development were all to become so complex and technical in their nature that a thorough grounding in and feeling for the physics and mathematics behind them would become essential. The tousled hair, rumpled shirt sleeve and stained-fingered eccentric inventor existed, but the speed with which, just for the fun or the sake of it, innovation became integrated into vast, powerful, monopolistically inclined corporations is revealing and sets a pattern that most of us will be familiar with today. Inventors like Caractacus Potts, Heath Robinson, Rube Goldberg, Wallace and Gromit, Inspector Gadget, Professor Brainstorm and Doc Emmett Brown from Back to the Future were all 20th century idealisations of inventors whose manner, affect and image derived really from that great age of invention, which I'll set as 1880 to 1910. We return to Alexander Graham Bell's ploughing of his Volta Prize Fund into his Bell Labs. You see, it was all very well for him to have invented the telephone, but there was a reason he had said, I believe in this invention. It is my firm conviction that one day there will be a telephone in every town in America. It sounds like a, a comically dumb underestimation to us, but he had a problem with the phone. Unlike the telegraph, which sent plain pulses along a wire, he was sending more complicated signals. How does a telephone work? 
Well, in the Phones of Bell's era and moving into turn-of-the-century instruments, they converted the human voice into an electrical signal by sound waves from the human voice vibrating a membrane called a diaphragm, a taut disc of aluminium, actually two discs, through which a low current was passed. In between the two was a button of compressed carbon. This was, in fact, an invention of Thomas Edison's, which he patented and licensed to Bell. He'd go on to develop the button into the even more effective carbon granules I mentioned earlier. These tiny granules lived in the chamber between the discs. The variation in pressure in the waves of sound passing through the granules varied the resistance to the current that ran between the discs. Effectively, this converted sound waves to electrical waves. At the other end, the waves would vibrate the membrane in the receiver and the membrane or eardrum of the listener, their ear. Thanks to Edison's carbon microphone, the sender no longer had to shout, which in the early Bell devices, they did. God, I hope I got that right. Now, that was all very well, but irony of ironies, the telephone is called the telephone because it is sound over a distance, telephone. Yet Bell and his successors were bedeviled by the difficulty of precisely that, distance. When the electrified version of the voice travelled from phone to switchboard via cables to another switchboard and was finally routed to the intended receiver, it ended up much weaker than the pulses of a telegraph and weakened considerably further, or attenuated in telephonic jargon, after a matter of mere miles. So Bell's depositing of his prize money into these new research labs, these Bell Labs, was a wise, hard-headed business decision. He needed smart minds to solve the problems of distance, to find some way of boosting the signal as it went its way, and maybe even of allowing telephone calls to be carried on wires all the way across America in the way telegraph could carry telegrams. It was a man called Theodore Vale who might be credited with taking Bell's ball and running with it. A cousin of the Alfred Vale, who developed the telegraph with Morse, he was president of AT&T between 1885 and 1919, the time which saw the transformation of the telephone from a localised gimmick to a transcontinental networked system of immense power, reach, scope, influence and importance in the world. In other words, under his watch, the problem of distance was solved. Alexander Graham Bell's father-in-law, Gardner G. Hubbard, who ran the American Bell Telephone Company, was so impressed by Vale, who had shone as an expert in the telegraph and as a young superintendent of the railway mail service, that he invited him to become general manager of Bell Telephone in 1878. A few years later, Vale oversaw the creation of Bell's new entity, AT&T, which was to be responsible for the infrastructure, customer base, services, call routing, and what we would now call the network. While a secondary company, Western Electric, acquired as the result of an unmannerly and ugly patent fight, which Bell won, was used within the Bell system, Marbell, to create the phones themselves, the cabling and switchboards, the hardware, in other words. Vale was perhaps the first truly to see the scope and potential of the telephone, and as an ambitious company man, he wanted the Bell system to be the one that led it all the way to its true potential. 
By the time he took over, Alexander Graham Bell's patents had expired and all kinds of rivals were sprouting up. Vale's response was actually to put a stop to the litigious practices that had characterised the Bell companies in the early years. He fired 12,000 employees and streamlined the company, but with an eye to two futures that would expand it massively. The first was political, really. He knew that in order to prevail across America, no matter how many smaller Bell companies might be hived off, New Jersey Bell, Pacific Bell, etc., etc., he would need a vast network. And if he were to invest in a vast network, he needed a virtual monopoly. That meant he needed to persuade the government to allow Mar Bell to be exempted from antitrust, anti-monopoly litigation. The second front on which he fought was more to our taste, technology. He injected into the corporate DNA a perpetual, never-ending belief in the value of research and development. The Bell Labs that the company's founding genius Alexander Graham Bell, now retired but benignly and sometimes fiercely vigilant, had funded with his Volta Prize money, was tasked to provide the Bell system with innovation, invention, engineering and electrical solutions to all their problems. This meant investing not just in materials and laboratories and research centres, but most importantly, in people. And crucially, perhaps for the first time outside a university, a group of people with an understanding of this new physics that was appearing all over the place. The electron had been isolated and observed. Einstein, in part greatly inspired by Maxwell's discovery of the electromagnetism and his calculations therefrom about the speed of light, was just beginning to publish there was talk of quanta and the nuclear force, and the subject of mathematics, thanks to its opening up by Hilbert and Riemann, and later Russell and Girdle, was embarking on a golden age too. The first thing Vale achieved was the change to copper wires, stiff, thick-gauge, hard-drawn copper, to replace the iron wires that had previously carried phone signals. This helped with the signal, but they needed something else. Remember Oliver Heaviside and his loading coil inductors, which reduced distortion on the transatlantic telegraph cable? Well, AT&T, after patent wrangling, license paying and all kinds of nonsense, got the technology by 1901 and rolled it out. It doubled the reach of the copper wires. Another important way of expressing this is to say it halved the cost. Loading coils are reckoned to have saved AT&T over $100 million in the first quarter of the 20th century. Heaviside got not a penny, despite loading coils being entirely his invention. Copper wires, loading coils and another technology, repeaters, extended the reach of the telephone. A repeater was a kind of mechanical amplifier which boosted the weakened signals. Unfortunately, there was a maximum number of repeaters you could place on the line before distortion and attenuation undid any benefit. Essentially, these modifications and improvements combined could get a voice call from New York to the Rockies, over halfway across the United States, but far short of the gold standard, which was to repeat the achievements of rail and telegraph and connect from New York to San Francisco, the symbolic handshake from sea to shining sea that Vale demanded. In fact, he made a commitment 
not unlike the famous one of John F. Kennedy in promising to get a man on the moon and back safely by the end of the 1960s. In 1909, Vail announced he wanted a fully transcontinental phone service in place by the 1914 Panama Pacific International Exposition. Five years he gave them. The Panama Canal had shown what willpower, money and engineering ingenuity could do in opening up continents. Let AT&T do something similar. San Francisco, it should be noted, was all but a pile of rubble at the time, thanks to the earthquake and subsequent fire of 1906, and very much in need of the morale boost of such a dazzling new connection to the world. The Bell Lab scientists and engineers tasked with achieving this feat were up to the technical challenges of temperature and control posed by the stringing of wires across landscapes as varied as the Rocky Mountains and some of the hottest desert in the world, but they were stuck with the repeater problem. If they couldn't amplify the signal across the line, Vale's ambitions would be thwarted. Physicist Frank Jewett, the first president of Bell Labs, nonetheless told Vail it could be done. He decided to hire not engineers, but scientists. And this was his great insight, his great leap. The golden age of invention had made Edison Bell Marconi and three years previously in 1903 the Wright Brothers too world famous. Jewett's decision to hire a group of unknown physics PhDs and quotes assign to them the sole task of developing a telephone repeater, unquotes, marks for me a sea change in the history of innovation. Which is not to say that everything went to the blackboard and that the world of smells, explosions, tinkering and lashing together ended. Many of the great scientists and mathematicians in this field, like Davy and Faraday from the previous era and Heaviside and Feynman of later eras, were as happy with hammers, screwdrivers and wrenches in their hands as a piece of chalk. Not to mention the two greatest heroes of the information age, Claude Shannon and Alan Turing, who lie waiting for us in future podcasts. Two of the scientists who worked under Jewett's direction at the Bell Labs premises in the meatpacking district of New York City were Harvey Fletcher and Harold Arnold. And what they were set to work on was an amplification device called the Audion, which had been brought to AT&T by its inventor, Lee DeForest quite unlike components for electrical control that had come before it, the Audion was a marvellous-looking object, resembling a, a light bulb. It had a filament that heated up and worked as a cathode emitting electrons and a cool plate that acted as the anode attracting the electrons. There was a third electrode, a mesh between the two known as a grid, current applied to the grid could be increased by the current travelling from the hot cathode to the cool anode. In other words, it took a weak signal and amplified it. Harold Arnold worked, tweaked, refined, experimented and came up with a much better and more reliable and usable and manufacturable version. Being an evacuated glass object, the component became known as a vacuum tube. In Britain, they tended to be called thermionic valves, or just valves, the valve referring to the nature of diodes, cathode-anode components that allow current to go one way but not the other, like a valve. This particular kind, the first, the amplifier, became known since it had three electrodes, the grid, the anode and the cathode, as a triode. 
The transcontinental line using these vacuum tube amplifiers as repeaters was as promised by Vale, finished in time for the Panama Pacific Exposition, which had happily been delayed by a year. Thus, in 1915, the father of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, sat in an office in New York City and in front of a crowd of press and photographers put in a call to his old lab assistant, Thomas Watson, who was sitting at a desk in San Francisco. The famous first words ever spoken on a telephone in 1875 had been, Mr. Watson, come here, I want you. And Bell repeated them with a chuckle now, 40 years later, across the 3,000 mile and 130,000 poles line. Watson replied, it would take me a week to get there. The Electric Conversation Office forecast by the British electric telegraph pioneer Francis Ronalds, had become transcontinental. That electric conversation could never have happened without the vacuum tube triode amplifier. But the vacuum tube did more than enable AT&T to create its vast monopolistic network and instigate the age of telephony. It opened up an entirely new field of study and achievement, a field which was to be called electronics, the specialised science of controlling, varying, amplifying, diverting, routing, circuiting and manipulating electrical current in such a way as to perform extraordinary new magic. Straight away, the triode was put to work in other fields of telecommunications, most notably radio. It had the ability to convert alternating current, such as came off the grid, to direct current, such as was useful for many, if not most, of the new generation of electronic devices. Marconi had successfully sent radio signals from Europe to North America in 1902, but the new vacuum tube triode now allowed radio transmission by amplitude modulation, known as AM, greatly increasing its reach, resolution and power efficiency. New amplifying triode radio sets powering loudspeakers could replace the first generation of crystal set or cat's whisker wireless sets which had needed earphones. Soon, with the broadcasting possibilities also allowed by vacuum tube components, a radio set could become a piece of household furniture that relayed music, speech, news and drama to a stunned and happy family. You might have spotted the word thermionic as an adjective used to describe the vacuum tube. This referred to the heat generated by the cathode that was passed to the cooler anode. Heat, I remind you yet again, means work. How was the heat generated? By the work done by the current. How was the current derived? By the generation that the discoveries of Michael Faraday had shown could be achieved with the turning or moving of a loop of copper wire between the poles of a magnet. Without a reliable supply of wattage, none of the glories of electronics, including the telephone and radio, could be achieved. So how did the world find a reliable source of electrical power? Those and other questions will be answered when we hear the story of three great giants in the history of electricity generation, Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla and George Westinghouse. An elephant named Topsy threatens to make an appearance, but at the last minute doesn't. 
We discover, too, how brilliant, award-winning science can make you the most dangerous, destructive force in the world and the most benign. And both. Until then, if you have been, thanks for listening. This has been Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. Grateful thanks to our composer, Guy Farley. Also thanks to the Audio Network. For further information on the podcast series, visit stephenfry.com forward slash Great Leap Years. Great Leap Years is produced by Andrew Sampson and Norman Goodman. This is a Sam Fry Limited production.